Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. The Supreme Court ruled that abortion was a constitutional right in Roe v. Wade in 1973. It not only throttled an important ongoing democratic debate in the country about legalizing abortion, but it tore this country's culture apart. In the next 50 years, dedicated pro-life activists committed themselves to democratic engagement and advocacy to reverse Roe and return the struggle to the democratic sphere. That decades-long effort bore fruit last year in Dobbs v. Jackson. But that is far from the end of the story. The abortion issue continues to oil the country, with state legislatures passing dramatically different laws about the issue, and voters in state elections such as Kansas and Ohio supporting legalization. With the federal courts officially neutral, how will the pro-life movement seek to achieve its stated goal of convincing the entire country that life should be protected and respected from conception to natural death? My guest on this episode of Humanize has some answers. Clark Forsyth is Senior Counsel at Americans United for Life and the author of Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe v. Wade, which was cited by the Supreme Court in its majority opinion in Dobbs. In his 38 years at AUL, Forsyth has been co-counsel for parties in three U.S. Supreme Court cases and has argued before federal and state appellate courts. He has also testified before Congress and state legislatures. Forsyth has co-authored or authored 20-plus professional legal articles on constitutional and bioethical issues. His other articles have been published in the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, the Los Angeles Times, Public Discourse, the Washington Times, the Federalist, the Hill, and many other newspapers and magazines. His first book, Politics for the Greatest Good, which draws on lessons in political prudence from Thomas Aquinas, William Wilberforce, and Abraham Lincoln, was published by InterVarsity Press in 2009. His new book, Pushing Roe v. Wade, Over the Brink, co-authored with Alexandra DeSanctis, chronicles the 50-year struggle to overturn Roe v. Wade and its implications for future bioethical issues in American law and policy. Forsyth has a BA from Allegheny College, a JD from Valparaiso University, and an MA in Bioethics from Trinity International University, where he has been an adjunct professor of bioethics. Clark and his wife Karen, married for 41 years, have five daughters and 11 grandchildren. Clark, welcome to Humanize. Thanks, Wesley. Uh, Thanks very much for having me. You're a lawyer. What made you decide to choose that career? 
I guess it might have been an experience uh, in a political science course in high school uh, in, in which we also took a kind of a field trip to a, a local criminal court to see a criminal trial uh, that I think launched me to, to do a pre-law uh, pre, pre curriculum in college. Uh, and then, uh, but when I went to law school, uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, but I got in touch with America Genetic for Life. I volunteered for them. And uh, uh, with, uh, after a couple of years, uh, the position opened up a staff council and I joined in February of 1985. That's a long time to be part of the uh, struggle. Uh, what made you decide to literally dedicate your life to the Right to Life movement? Well, I would say it, it uh, has combined uh, my advocation uh, and my vocation and combined my interests in uh, philosophy and, uh, and law and policy and history. Uh, and uh, all of those coming together have, uh, uh, have, have kept me uh, in, the, in the fight for, for 38 years. Through the ups and downs, right? Yes, yes, m much of that. Um, the pro-life movement has had a lot of uh, setbacks over the years. How was it that you were able to maintain your continued uh, dedication to the issue, especially when it seemed after, let's say, Casey, the Casey case, yeah. uh, that uh, Roe would never be overturned? How did you, you know, continue to focus? Well, it was a combination of things. Uh, the love of my wife and her support, um, my, my faith, uh, uh, working with uh, dedicated colleagues. Uh, it's really been a, a series of teams that have been committed uh, to the work. Um, the fact that uh, the principles of uh, protecting la human life and the law are deeply embedded in our Anglo-American culture. Uh, that the Dobbs decision, by the way, uh, reaffirms and gives back to our nation. So it was uh, it was a combination of all of that. Let's talk just for a second about Americans United for Life. There are a lot of pro life organizations out there, and they all, you know, are very dedicated to their cause. Mm -hmm. What is what distinguishes AUL from perhaps other groups that are working on the pro life issue? Well, besides the Catholic bishops, uh, American Genetic for Life was the first national pro-life organization and then became the first pro-life public interest law firm in, in 1974. And um, we, have, we have focused on a, a range of bioethical issues in law and policy, uh, working in the courts and the legislatures, in Congress and the media. And uh, we have we have kept on that focus uh, for uh, fifty uh, two years now, um, inspired I think by uh, you know the success of the NAACP as a predecessor organization that um, began their work to uh, against racial segregation and to protect uh, uh, the civil rights of Black Americans in uh, at a, at a time when there was great. Hus social hostility. I mean, in the 1910s and 1920s, um, and they persevered for decades until Brown versus Board of Education, and that has always been uh, in inspiring to me and to others at American Jedi for Life. Yeah, and the 
people I know, I know many people, as you know, in the pro-life movement, they consider it a civil rights struggle. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's certainly a human rights struggle, a civil rights. When you consider the, the laws, uh, American laws over the years that have protected civil rights, um, it, uh, it involves the the protection of the Declaration of Independence. I see us as 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 protecting uh, the, the the Declaration and and the human rights espoused in the Declaration that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, um, and that government is instituted to secure these rights. So that means working in law and government and public policy. You know what I've always found interesting. Uh, about um, this abortion struggle and contest is that people on the other side of it, the issue from you think that they're part of a civil rights movement, you know, that uh, protecting women's autonomy and so forth. Uh, I, I think it I may be wrong, but it strikes me as perhaps the first major social and cultural controversy in the country where both sides actually considered themselves pushing for uh, equality, pushing for civil rights, and so forth. What do you think about that theory? Well, I think uh, the notion that abortion is a civil right is, um, is, is contradicted by the feminists of the 19th century. Uh, there is a new book out by uh, Kelm and others uh, called uh, Pity for Evil, um, published uh, just recently by Encounter Books that shows how Susan B. Anthony and other major feminist leaders of the 1850s, 60s, 70s, um, and the, the first generation of female doctors in the United States, obstetricians and gynecologists, were completely opposed to abortion and thought it was a violation of women's rights. And they saw at that time that it was largely, the abortion was largely the result of male pressure, force, abandonment, coercion. And we still see that today. Um, uh, we still see that uh, uh, in, in surveys, in the testimonies of women. Um, uh, Sue Nathanson, um, who, who published a book in 1984, a California psychologist testified to the uh, coercion of her uh, husband in, in pressuring her to abort her fourth, chi fourth child. Uh, the actress uh, Patricia O'Brien in her 1988 uh, autobiography testified to the abandonment and pressures she felt to, to, to abort her child. and. And she said, uh, if I had anything uh, to do over in my life, I would have that child. We see surveys today that suggest that a majority of abortions are coerced. So the, the notion that abortion is, is, is grounded in autonomy or furthers women's autonomy is just contradicted by the prevalence of coerced abortion. What do you think, um, you know, the pro-life movement is controversial without question. What do you think is the greatest public misunderstanding about your cause and your movement? Well, there, there are probably a number of things uh, relative to each issue. But um, 
I, I, I suppose it would be that we are somehow uh, interfering with autonomy or undermining autonomy. But when you look at the issue of abortion, again, uh, we see the prevalence of coerced abortion and abandonment. Um, when you look at the issue of assisted suicide and euthanasia, as you well know, uh, patients, uh, chronically ill patients, terminally ill patients are vulnerable and are often influenced by coercion, uh, pressure, or abandonment. I think the uh, you know greatest misunderstanding is, and it's a canard, it's a slander, mm. that pro-lifers only care about babies before they're born. Mm. And uh, I know just from uh, inter- interacting with people in the pro-life movement and, and uh, you know, reading the news, that pro-life people engage after a child is born too, support women, and also support women who've had abortions. Uh, mm. Would you comment on that just for a second? Well, the evidence is is vast and broad and extends from coast to coast in this country. Uh, when you consider the 2,700 pregnancy resource centers across this country in all 50 states uh, that have that have uh, existed for for decades um, and have grown a, a great deal, um, and, and the resources that go into the, that. Uh, the, the tens of millions of dollars annually, um, even most recently, when you consider in the past couple of years, when states uh, have passed early gestational limits, like Florida or Texas or Arkansas, they have simultaneously appropriated millions of dollars for uh, single women to care for their children. It's very interesting because that part of the story often doesn't make it into the media. How frustrating is it to you that the media usually doesn't fully report on pro-life advocacy and aims? Well, it's been tremendously frustrating, but not frustrating enough to make me quit because I believe that uh, uh, there are many telling this story and uh, I'm encouraged by their testimony, by their witness, by their sacrifice year after year, decade after decade, financially, in their profession, in their careers, to provide these services to women. And as the new book by Encounter, Pity for Evil, demonstrates, that sacrifice has gone back now more than 100 years. Um, in fact, uh, you can, you can you know, look into other his, uh, earlier historical sources, even going back to the first century. Uh, and you could find uh, the testimony of, uh, uh, of, of people uh, in the local community who have sacrificed to t- take in children who were abandoned to care for uh, abandoned mothers. And uh, so it's a, there's a long history of this sacrifice to protect vulnerable human beings at all stages of life. And uh, it continues today. And it's our challenge simply to get the word out. Uh, your book, um, Pushing Roe v. Wade Over the Brink, uh, seems to me like it's a uh, specific history about some of the work AUL has done, but also a general history of the pro-life movement, at least, let's say, in the 20th century, uh, into the 21st century. Would that be accurate? 
Yes, uh, uh, the history goes back to, uh, to the eight, uh, 1950s, 1960s, and American Genetic for Life is one of many organizations, diverse organizations, working in, in law, policy, society, medicine, uh, to, uh, to uh, be there for vulnerable human beings, uh, the chronically ill, the terminally ill, uh, vulnerable human beings throughout life um, that just testifies to the fact that at, at some point in life, we will all be vulnerable. Um, last year, about a year ago, my father died at the age of 94. And uh, in the last four years of his life, we took him into our home to care for him after, uh, well, during the, the, the latter years of my mother's life, um, who in the last eight to 10 years of her life was afflicted by dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, such a cruel disease that, you know, takes away, uh, you know, our, uh, our, you know, our personality. And, you know, we were pleased to care for my mother and father and, you know, they were blessed by it. Yeah, it, it's very important stuff. And I know that there are people in the pro-life movement who care for people like that, who aren't their relatives. And, uh, and uh, I think that, um, one of the things that disturbs me about the current atmosphere is even if one disagrees with pro-life advocacy to castigate activists uh, in the way we see is, is really unfortunate because it, it gives a very, um, I think, twisted and inaccurate picture of people who, for very little money often in, in volunteering, dedicate themselves to a cause they think is more important than themselves. Um, you, one of the interesting things I found about the book is that you get into bioethics. And as you know, I've written a lot about bioethics. Yes, you have. Uh, and and you I, it, it, I don't think most people realize how important that field has become mm. in our cultural struggles. Um, mm. Tell us about what bioethics is and how the emerging field in the 60s and 70s, which you get into into the book, kind of help uh, plow the field for Roe v. Wade and some of the uh, controversies we face today. Well, as you well know, um, this started with uh, the advance of medical technology. Um, you know, going back uh, decades, uh, going back to the 19th century. Um, but uh, you know, things uh, started to quicken, uh, if you will, in the, the 1960s. Uh, you know, I cite, uh, you know, the first uh, open heart surgery um, in uh, 1965 or 66, 67, uh, with, you know, the famous case uh, in South Africa. Um, and um, technology has just, uh, you know, blessed all of us with the ability to extend life, treat disease, but it has also brought with it uh, you know, innumerable ethical questions about how to use technology. I mean, technology itself is, is somewhat ethically neutral, but it's a question of how we use it and in what ways we use it. And do we use it to advance life or to cut it off? And um, uh, that bioethical revolution in the, in the 60s brought us questions of cloning and questions of, uh, of of gene therapy 
and um, the extension of life and the cutting off of life. I mean, I was I pointed out in in, in pushing Rovers' weight over the brink that uh, about the same time there were uh, medical uh, developments that allowed um, the care of pre 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 uh, maturely born children. Um, but at the same time, uh, doctors were working on uh, chemical abort abortifacients that would terminate pregnancy, and these were developing at the same time. Uh, and 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 as as you well know, uh, as you know, technology advances in the future, these bioethical issues are going to continue to hit us, uh, you know, year after year, and challenge us ethically. This is the subject for a different uh, interview, but it strikes me that we're in a situation where many people want to be able to uh, either conceive or manufacture children by any means necessary, no matter how extreme and radical. And at the same time, they want to be able to destroy the gestating child by any yeah. means necessary and at any time. And, and sometimes that paradox really kind of stuns me. Yes. Yes, it does. Uh uh, stuns me, and I'm sure and I know it has you. Um, it, and it's it's brought us so uh, many uh, ethical questions, and um, the, the the real question with regard to I think reproductive uh, reproductive technology is having a, a children's rights perspective, so that we are keeping the child at 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 the front of it all. Um, but. Um, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that has struck me over the last uh, decade is that um, these these uh, these bioethical developments, these medical developments um, of, of about enhancement that are coming to us, are circumventing the med uh, the, the doctor patient relationship, and they're being uh, you know kind of direct uh, direct advertisement to consumers through every media um, uh, imaginable. And it is it has struck me that um, uh, it, it, when it comes to these elective uh, procedures uh, that that are designed to provide enhancement for physical, mental, or sexual function, that um, we need to be protected by an enhanced level of informed consent, um, and that we need to develop that area in law and policy, and make sure that. Uh, the burden is on these entrepreneurs and marketers to provide the highest level of informed consent and information to all of us. Uh, uh, by enhanced, you mean uh, greater documentation, uh, proof that full disclosure was made? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, and, and, uh, in enhancement in a couple of ways. Enhancement uh, the, that's being marketed to us, that we enhance our physical and mental and sexual function, um, but enhancement in the sense of heightened informed consent and more robust informed consent so that all of us when we're marketed with these drugs and devices um, know as much as possible about uh, their short-term and long-term risks and what data exists or doesn't exist I mean for example vaccines uh, you know we've we've uh, now gone through the pandemic uh, and um, one of the things that no one could tell, uh, you know, my daughters uh, who were of childbearing age is what's the future effect of these vaccines on long, you know, on long term on fertility? There was just no data. They couldn't tell them. But did women, young women of childbearing age know that that uh, they didn't know? Uh, so and so by what, what would have happened in, in enhanced 
disclosure would be not to say this you're at risk, but say we don't know whether mm-hmm. this will impact your uh, future ability to have a child, and and that should be part of your decision making process. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you you want mainly write in the book about abortion, but you also bring in assisted suicide and euthanasia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting that abortion became a much bigger issue earlier than euthanasia. Why do you think that is? Because perhaps there was a push by doctors going back to the 1950s uh, and by elites to uh, promote abortion and to rescind the historic legal protection um and perhaps um perhaps the you know the push for euthanasia and assisted suicide then followed the technology of the 1960s that served to extend life and perhaps it was a reaction to all these medical procedures uh, heart lung machines and so forth that yes. served to extend life, and people react. Some people reacted by saying, "Well, we don't want this. Uh, you know, uh, it has its downsides." And, um, uh, and 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 so there was a reaction that that uh, pushed people to say, "Well, you know, why should we be pushed into this? Why should this be forced upon us?" If it was, well, and and I think one of the uh, achievements of bioethics was the ability to say no to unwanted medical treatment, even yeah. if uh, the consequence of that is a probable death. But that's not the same thing as killing. In fact, in uh, Bacco yeah. v. Quill, the Supreme Court 9-0 said, refusing life-sustaining treatment is not the same thing as assisted suicide. Yes, exactly. Um, is it true that Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood at one time opposed abortion? Well, I think Margaret... Sanger did yes, um, and um, and she uh, Sanger pushed contraception in part because she said to avoid abortion and to prevent abortion, and you know that's documented in her writings. And Planned Parenthood in the nineteen fifties, um, uh, influenced by Sanger, who you know who was a founder, right. um, at, at least initially. Uh, were skeptical about abortion and wanted to push contra- artificial contraception to prevent abortion or to put it off or to avoid it uh, or, or the, the, the quote-unquote need for it. And, um, you know, eventually they changed their position, uh, you know, shortly before the Supreme Court took up the issue of abortion and uh, and then ultimately pushed for the legalization of abortion uh, through Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. Why do you think they made that change? Because there's a big difference, at least as I look at it, from saying, "Look, we want people to be able to, de- you know, decide when to have children." To there's a, a right to terminate uh, a life that has started. Well, I suppose it was perhaps a change in the generation of leadership. Um, it perhaps was the belief uh you know that uh, the national organization for women was originally against it um as you know betty for dan in her book the feminine mystique didn't mention the word abortion didn't push it at all in her book uh, at least the first edition um and uh now the national organization eventually split over the issue and, and i believe it was 19 
1968, 69, 70, you know, on, on the eve of these cases, these abortion cases getting into the courts, moving toward the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, when one element of now pushed abortion, again, under the illusion that it was going to lead to women's autonomy, um, uh, that affected, I suppose, Planned Parenthood as well. And Planned Parenthood, of course, has now become a behemoth. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of money in them, Lar Hills, huh? Mm. Billions. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about Roe v. Wade. Um, when Roe v. Wade uh, came out, I wasn't, I didn't think too much about it. I was in law school. Okay, this is the new Supreme Court ruling. Tell us uh, how that case came about and some of the falsehoods that were actually in part of the factual record of that case. Well, in uh, 2013, I published Abuse of Discretion, the inside story of Roe versus Wade. And uh, at the time, and I think still is, uh, I, I believe it's the most important book published about Roe since Roe, because I had the opportunities to, uh, to look at uh, the personal papers of eight of the nine justices uh, who voted in Roe versus Wade, all but Chief Justice Warren Burger's papers, which are still under seal. And those papers tell a completely different history than the public had been told beforehand. Uh, and they, they tell how um, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, the companion cases, there was no trial, no evidentiary record in either of those cases in the district court. Uh, in the federal district court, they went straight up to the Supreme Court without any intermediate appellate review. Um, uh, there, uh, the the much of of what is in the the Supreme Court's opinion in Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton is uh, is was constructed by by Justice Blackman through his own research that violated the adversarial process and the procedural due process that the court had held to um, uh, the 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 viability rule that the court. F uh, uh, latched upon late in the process was never mentioned viability was never mentioned at all in the litigation or in the supreme court oral arguments um, the court originally took the cases not to decide the abortion issue but to decide a procedural issue um, and then there was a crisis in the court when two of the justices uh left abruptly due to ill health and and died in 1971 that flipped the balance of the court and it empowered three justices to use these cases that had been taken to decide a procedural issue uh, to decide uh, the abortion issue and to sweep away the abortion laws before those vacancies could be filled. And all of these, all of these manipulations, all of these uh, violations of procedural due process um, led the court to decide the issue uh, without facts or evidence. And those original defects uh, that court planted originally uh, were part of the problem that kept the Roe decision unsettled for 50 years and led to its overturning last year in Dobbs. I have a very general knowledge of it, but Norman McCorvey, who was Roe, um, the claim was that she had been raped and had an abortion uh, subsequent to the rape. In fact, she had not been raped and she did not have an abortion. Is that right? Both are correct. Um, the, the rape didn't make it into the litigation, but it was in the media and it surrounded the decision. 
And um, it was told kind of outside the courts and outside the judicial process. Um, but no, uh, she wasn't raped and she admitted that later. And she did not have an abortion, um, um, but gave birth, uh, I think, one of three children she had. Um, and um, and uh, as you know, well know, after the decision years later, uh, she turned her life around and um, she, in fact, opposed uh, Roe versus Wade and tried to get it overturned, both through testimony before Congress and through filing a later case in 2005 or 2006 in federal court that tried to overturn the decision. Um, but the court never heard those case, that case and uh, turned it away. And she was never successful, and she died before the Dobbs decision. Um, Roe, uh, let me ask you this first. In looking through the papers, did did you find any evidence that the justices said, look, this is just too hot a potato for democratic processes. We're just going to settle this issue once and for all. Was that their motive, Did you do you think? I think it was part of their motive. Uh, they, part of their motive was to settle the issue. Part of their motive after Griswold versus Connecticut, which um, you know struck down a, a ban on the marital use of contraception, which was then expanded in Eisenstadt versus Baird in 1972 to strike down limits on advertising, strike down uh, use of a, a contraception by by single individuals. Uh, those were cited as premises. Um, but population control, as I point out in abuse of discretion, was another big motivator. They, uh, as you know, uh, population control, the popular, so-called population explosion uh, in the 1960s was a big motivator. Um, after uh, President Nixon became president in January of 1969, he gave a major speech named uh, uh, to supporting uh, uh, population control, named a national commission, uh, which released a, uh, a report in March of 1972 while Justice Blackmun was working on his opinions, his draft opinions in Roe versus Wade. That commission endorsed the legalization of abortion for population control. You know, now decades later, you know, we realize that that was a an illusion, and you know now many countries are concerned about population implosion. Um, but those those were motivators uh, of the justices, and uh, you know uh, there was no evidence, no trial on any of those issues, no no data, no evidence to support uh, their motivations. They were just personal motivators, um, but they had no evidence as. as to, you know, to demonstrate that any of those motivators, you know, were, were, were reliable data or were serious indicators. I, I wasn't aware until you said it a couple of minutes ago that the normal appellate process had not been followed in Roe v. Wade. So no, it no. strikes me this is a pure judicial legislation. And it was just a, a desire to uh, exercise their power to settle an issue based on their perspectives. Was it Justice yeah. White who warned um, uh, against that decision and saying it was an abuse of, uh, 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 I forgot that how he worded it, you might remember, a tremendous phrase, a, a, a tremendous abuse of judicial power? Yes, uh, 
Justice White and Justice Rehnquist were the two original dissenters in the 7-2 decision in Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. And uh, Justice White called it uh, an act of raw judicial power. Raw, that was and, it, raw judicial power, right. And that, that phrase, uh, you know, animated uh, uh, critics, law, law school critics, judicial critics, scholarly academic critics, you know, for 40, 50 years. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The phrase, the phrase, phrase might have made its way into the Dobbs decision. Uh, a quote from Justice White. Ruth Bader Ginsburg opposed Roe v. Wade, not because she opposed abortion, but she thought it was improperly decided. E- explain that briefly. Well, before she uh, became a Supreme Court justice, she had published at least one, or if not two, law review articles based on speeches criticizing the Roe decision. Um, but primarily because she said it went too far too fast. And frankly, she published at least one of those articles uh, months before she was named uh, to the court by just uh, by President Clinton um, during, frankly, I think the Clinton campaign. And I wonder if those sentiments were expressed uh, to cast her as a quote unquote moderate. Uh, to ease her nomination by uh, President Clinton, um, because she was cast in that light when she was first nominated. But she then, after, uh, after getting life tenure on the Supreme Court, she struck down every limit, every regulation, every constraint on abortion that ever got before the court. Um, and she fashioned a judicial doctrine that was ex- is as extreme as Roe and Doe versus Bolton, if not more so. Um, uh, and that was her position when she uh, finally left the court. Um, how did Roe get modified over the years? I mean, the original version, you know, had the three trimester uh, formula, and that changed, particularly with Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And what did Planned Parenthood v. Casey do? And how did the pro-life movement then use that ruling to begin to uh, amend state laws and so forth? Well, Casey came uh, basically 20 years after Roe versus Wade in in 1992. And uh, Casey, uh, for the first time, allowed some regulations, marginal regulations, such as informed consent. And the states started to immediately pass informed consent laws. Uh, Casey also endorsed parental consent laws. And the states started passing those as well. Um, Casey was one of uh, ultimately 30 plus cases that reached the Supreme Court and that the court decided on the abortion issue. Um, and, uh, and these cases were important uh, and vital to the campaign to overturn Roe versus Wade because they showed the problems of the court's abortion doctrine. They showed the problems of the trimester approach. They showed the problems of the viability rule. They showed the, the problems of the, of the rules and regulations that the court concocted to uh, protect the right to abortion. And, uh, you know, with each decision that that, uh, the court either struck down limits, such as a limit on partial birth abortion, or the court upheld limits that the states could then uh, uh, adopt. 
But um, each decision showed um, the unworkability of Roe versus Wade and uh, inspired judicial criticism and um, scholarly criticism. I mean, even 20 years after Roe versus Wade and Casey, there were four justices who strongly said this court has to get out of the abortion umpiring business, in Justice Scalia's words, and return this issue to the states. And then another 20 years after Casey, uh, the campaign continued, and there was judicial criticism by Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. Um, and, uh, and those cases in the courts kept the campaign against Roe versus Wade alive, kept case kept Roe versus Wade unsettled uh, and led to the Dobbs decision in June of 2022. This unsettled uh, aspect, um, we, the people on the other side of the issue would say, but it's precedent, it's precedent. And what you're telling me is that uh, unlike, um, let's say, Brown v. Board of Education, Roe was never actually accepted in the way that a true uh, permanent precedent is. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, go back to Brown. It was decided unanimously. And, you know, one of the uh, hallmarks, uh, one of the reasons to salute Chief Justice Earl Warren is that he worked patiently to create a unanimous court behind a unanimous opinion uh, that struck down racial segregation and s- the separate but equal doctrine. But Roe was seven to two. And after uh, 1986, it was almost always five to four, showing the, the uh, division in the court. And uh, that division continued um, until Dobbs, showing internal turmoil and showing that it was settled. See, uh, you know, precedent is is not just stare decisis, the Latin's meaning uh, stand by the decisions. It's actually uh, uh, the, the, the common law Latin maxim is stare decisis equiete non mover, which means stand by the decisions and don't disturb what's settled. So settled law is at the heart of stare decisis. That's, it's at the heart of the value of precedent. Well, Brown v. Board of Education was 9-0. And it was, uh, you know, after the, the country accepted it. And after a, a decade or so, it was unquestioned. And it's unquestioned today. But Roe v. Wade was always unsettled. And, um, you, you know, the, the, the justices in Planned Parenthood v. Casey ignored that Roe was unsettled. And, and, and simply ignored that that cent- central value of stare decisis and precedent. And, and the Dobbs dissent in June of 2022 also ignored that Roe versus Wade was unsettled. They ignored that essential uh, uh, premise at, at the heart of, of stare decisis. Um, and, and they just couldn't contend with it, either in Casey or in Dobbs. They couldn't deal with it. They couldn't address it. They couldn't respond to it. Um, so they, in both Casey and in Dobbs, uh, those who supported Roe uh, had to recraft, had to reimagine uh, precedent in order for the very purpose of keeping Roe at all costs and at all odds for any reason whatsoever. Uh, back in the late 90s, a case came along called Glucksburg, uh, which I, full disclosure, uh, filed an amicus brief in. 
uh, in which uh, people advocating for assisted suicide attempted to impose on the country nationwide assisted suicide in the same way Roe had imposed nationwide abortion. And they lost nine to zero. And of course, I, as as a participant in that decision, was an amicus brief, not arguing, uh, was very pleased. And then I never thought that much about it after that, other than to say, well, there isn't a constitutional right to assisted suicide. But it turned out that Glucksburg euthanized Roe v. Wade, uh, which which I found deliciously ironic, uh, because the point of the case being brought was to have a new Roe v. Wade, but on this other issue. How did Glucksburg influence the Dobbs decision? Well, Roe influenced, I think, Glucksburg, as you as you know, because the backlash to Roe, I think, influenced the court in Glucksburg to deny a nationwide right to assisted suicide, which would have put the court in the uh, assisted suicide umpiring business. And the court said, no, we're not going to create a national right to assisted suicide like abortion. We're going to leave it to the states. And Glucksburg uh, affirmed the state authority to be involved in the issue through its the state's police power to regulate the practice of medicine, which is obviously centrally involved in assisted suicide, and to continue the historical prohibition on assisted suicide. When Dobbs came along in June of 2022, the court cited Glucksburg and cited the analysis in Glucksburg. And frankly, if you read Alito's majority opinion in Dobbs, it reminds you of Chief Justice's majority opinion in Vaco v. Quill and Glucksburg versus Washington. Uh, it's the same type of historical analysis, the same uh, deference to states and state authority, the same re- uh, uh, reaffirmation of federalism in our constitutional system and leaving these issues to the people uh, and their elected representatives in the states. It's interesting when I read Dobbs, <laughs> I was like, "What, Glucksburg?" And uh, the the, uh, uh, the court basically said that in, you know, unless something has been a in terms of unenumerated rights, um, that unless it's been a basic part of American liberty for a long, long time mm-hmm. uh, and uncontroversial, then it doesn't have it doesn't have that kind of power. Describe that part of the case a little bit. Well, as you know, uh, the court went into a great deal of history in, in Glucksburg and Vaco v. Quill and laid out uh, the historical uh, you know, precedent, if you will, of uh, uh, Anglo-American jurisprudence protecting the vulnerable human beings from assisted suicide uh, or euthanasia. Um, and they went through that same historical analysis in Dobbs in in. Roe versus Wade gave us 50 years of a false history, 50 years of suggesting that uh, the prenatal human being was was not protected by the law. Dobbs gave us back our Anglo-American heritage going back centuries, uh, demonstrating that Anglo-American medicine, Anglo-American law protected the human being here at the beginning of life 
as 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 uh, Glucksberg did and Vakovic Quill did uh, in, in the middle of life and at the end of life, uh, protecting vulnerable human beings in the law because of the sanctity of human life, because of equal human dignity, because of that those human rights expressed in the Declaration of Independence that was based on the common law. Uh, so uh, the court reaffirmed Glucksberg and used the Glucksberg analysis uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade as an unsettled decision, as a fragile decision, as an unworkable decision, and to give us back as Americans our Anglo-American heritage. Do you think that Dobbs is a settled or a non-settled precedent? Well, I think it's too early to claim that it's settled. Um, but uh, it will take democratic action. It will take public opinion. It will take uh, additional court decisions at the, steder- at the federal and the state level. It will take legislative action by either Congress and the, uh, and the states. These are the type of actions that settle uh, a decision. I mean, Brown versus Board of Education was challenged in the first decade uh, or, the, or through the 1950s. And, uh, you know, might have taken a decade to, uh, to become settled. And it, took, and it, uh, take, it sometimes took the National Guard uh, going into school districts to enforce it. That's right, in the South in the 1950s. Um, so Brown was uh, unsettled, and it took the court to reaffirm it. It took public opinion to come around it. It took legislative and judicial action to reaffirm it. And I think it will take some time. I, I mean, I see action uh, that has serve to suggest that Dobbs is becoming settled. For example, when, when, the, when uh, you know, Americans have voted now in elections, Americans have, uh, state legislators have passed uh, 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 abortion bills, uh, uh, voters have, have voted, judges have applied Dobbs, all of those serve to settle it, but I think it will take some time uh, for Americans to understand that the court should never have been in the abortion umpiring business. The court in Roe and Doe should have left it to the states and that the people now have the freedom to decide policy at the state level. Um, and um, that will, those actions will serve to settle Dobbs uh, over the long term, I believe. I think, though, that the Roe case by normalizing abortion, because a lot of people think that if something's legal, that's the same thing as being right. Yes. And I think that uh, you're seeing the tremendous controversy now uh, and uh, dichotomy among the different states. Some states having very strong restrictions, some states say 15 weeks, some states saying abortion for whatever reason, whenever in the pregnancy, etc. I think that's a, as a result of the normalization of abortion, because the democratic process at in the early 70s was working through that issue. A few states had legalized it. Ronald Reagan had actually signed a bill legalizing uh, abortion in California for, to, for under certain circumstances. And that whole thing was short-circuited. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the reason we have the bitter divisions in our country today culturally falls right on the, the fault of Roe v. Wade. I completely agree. Um, uh, there was a 50-year legacy of 
telling the nation a false history, uh, telling the nation that uh, that the prenatal human being was not a person, was not a human being. Uh, the the court, Supreme Court, and with all its authority, proclaimed that, and uh, and then and then the courts imposed it from coast to coast, in every state and local government uh, and town across the country uh, for 50 years. And, you know, there's there's no uh, reason to hope that that legacy could be erased, you know, within months or a year or two. Uh, it will take it will take time. Uh, it will take, a, I think, a generation at least. Yeah. And and what a lot of commentators who oppose Dobbs are saying is women actually came to expect uh, the availability of abortion and and the rug has been pulled out from under them, and do you think that that is impacting like the Ohio vote, where a constitutional amendment was passed in Ohio to legalize abortion in that state, which is relatively conservative state? Yes, these uh, the legacy of Roe versus Wade has certainly influenced the votes, um, but th- there's an important distinction between representative government. And what has happened uh, on the abortion issue through representative government since Dobbs and what's happened through ballot initiatives, which is a form of direct democracy. Uh, Ballot initiatives and direct democracy have have, uh, favored abortion. Uh, Representative government, elected government has favored uh, life protective laws um, because there are now 22 states that have passed or have enforced early gestational limits, um, and um, and and that is not widely publicized either. But I think that um, moving ahead, that um, um, we need uh, that the states and that uh, uh, organizations need to be reaching out to women. That pregnancy resource centers need to be enhanced and and supported and and prospered. Um, and strengthened uh, and amplified um, throughout the country in every state um, and that um, we need to come alongside women as pregnancy resources have done for decades to support them uh, before and after birth. Um, uh, we ne- Americans need to understand that a majority of abortions are coerced uh, through subtle pressure um, or, pre- or force uh, or abandonment um, pressure from uncommitted men, pressure from parents, pressure from sex traffickers, uh, and that um, we need to step step alongside women and help them to resist that pressure and um, and 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 bear the ch- ch- children that many would like to do if they had the support they need. Americans United for Life has proposed uh, a nationwide free birth campaign. Uh, which I think is along the lines of what you were just describing. Do you want to uh, uh, discuss that for a moment? Yes, we've proposed, uh, and there has been some some support in Congress uh, to make birth free, uh, and and to support that through federal funding. Um, and uh, I believe a bill will be introduced in Congress in coming months uh, that will make it official. Um, and I, I look forward to that debate in Congress. But the states can also take that up. Uh, uh, states can make birth free as well through uh, public funding. Um, organizations, nonprofit organizations can also step in. Um, a- as you well know, um, 
there's a kind of a synergy between the states and Congress. Congress can uh, introduce a bill that the states can take up, or the states can introduce a bill that Congress can take up. Uh, so uh, this can be introduced at the state or the federal level, and I, I hope to see uh, progress along these lines. So the, the point there, I mean, you've talked about coercion, but also the issue of uh, resources and finances plays a part in abortion, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, uh you know, women simply need to know that there are resources uh, through, you know, uh, at the state level, through public funding or through nonprofit organizations, through charitable resources, private funding uh, that can help them uh, carry their child to term and help them after birth. Um, and the states, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the states have, have appropriated millions of dollars um, in, in Florida and Texas and, and many other states, perhaps as many as eight to 10 states now, um, that are available to help women um, to resist the pressure that they often feel and to uh, bear the ch children that they want. And I, think uh, the, I hope that'll move forward and that it'll be more, more widely publicized. I think one of the obstacles to succeeding in that endeavor is that um, people on the other side of the issue will say, well, if you want free birth, you're also going to have to have free abortion. And this is not a issue that people can compromise on. Well, hopefully we will uh, defeat public funding of abortion because, frankly, public funding is another form of coercion. Um, explain that. Explain that point. Well, you know, the, uh, women abort for economic reasons, um, and um, public funding is simply another form of coercion. I testified before a U.S. House subcommittee, appropriation subcommittee, in March earlier this year of 2023, uh, informing them that uh, they should support the Hyde Amendment. They should support a complete prohibition on federally funded abortion, taxpayer funding of abortion, because it is a number, another form of coercion. If, if women cite economic uh, uh, reasons for abortion, then those who pressure women, who abandon women, uh, the uncommitted male, the parents, the sex trafficker, um, can point to public funding of abortion and say, hey, it's free. Why don't, you, why don't you resort to this? Why don't you take advantage of it? It's free. And that simply weighs, you know, weights the scales against giving birth. Um, uh, so um, public funding is simply another form of coercion of women to abort. I think there's also going to be a controversy um, in the pro-life movement between those who would like to see a federal law uh, restricting abortion uh, and those who say, look, we've been arguing for decades, this should be in the states. That's where the fight should be. Uh, as have the uh, I've already seen evidence of that. Has the pro-life movement found ways to try to kind of deal with that potential uh, conflict within uh, intramurally within themselves? Yes, I mean there there have been ongoing uh, discussions, um, you know, regular meetings, um, you know, to bring together people to to talk about um, federal a federal law versus state laws or or both. Um, and uh, I think that, that that discussion will continue. Uh, I don't think there's support now in Congress to pass a, a, a federal limit, even even a limit as late as 15 weeks. And of course, uh, you know, President Biden would you know never sign such a bill. So, uh, but so that that discussion about a federal law 
will uh, you know, have to wait until a new administration and 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 a Senate that uh, and a new Senate that would be inclined to support it. Um, and there are there are uh, of course, as you know, members of Congress who have simply said, you know, this is is not a federal issue. Um, it it should be a state issue, and we should leave it to the states. But I think there will be uh, certainly pro life forces and 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 leaders and organizations who will continue to fund. To, to push for a federal limit, and here's why. Um, uh, as, you, as you said at the outset, there are states like you know, New York and Illinois and California, states in the Northwest and the Northeast that have no limits at any gestational age on abortion, uh, who uh, allow uh, late-term abortion um, after, after viability, uh, on the, uh, uh, on the uh, edge of birth. Um, and, and the a congressional law could at least uh, have some gestational limit, um, you know, perhaps at 15, 20 weeks or 15 weeks. And if the states want to go farther, they could go farther with even earlier gestational limits. But at least corral California and New York and Illinois, who have no limits whatsoever. I think one of the reasons uh, those laws have not gained any real attention is the media won't cover it. Uh, the media just said, oh, this is an acting role, which of course isn't true. Uh, and secondly, I think a lot of people don't believe that late-term abortions occur, except mm. in the most extreme cases. But haven't we seen some late-term abortionists basically say, yes, yeah, sometimes they abort healthy, uh, a normal, quote-unquote, I'm not trying to use that in a value-laden way, uh, fetuses and babies? Oh, absolutely. I mean, not only do they exist, but there are late-term abortionists who specialize in it. And have specialized in it for decades, um, and they continue to specialize in it. Uh, abortionists in Boulder, Colorado, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and other places throughout the country, Maryland. Um, uh, there are there are abortionists who specialize in it uh, and make it to make it uh, you know readily available. Um, and, and that's uh, thousands and thousands a year, isn't it? Um, I don't know exact numbers, but um, uh, you know at least hundreds. Um, and, and, and the uh, the doctor and uh, abortionist in Boulder uh, had a big piece in the Atlantic, uh, or he was interviewed in the Atlantic, uh, and he basically said, "Yeah, sometimes uh, I will abort normally gestating late term babies that are viable because I have an absolutist belief that a woman has a right not to have a baby if she doesn't want one." Absolutely, uh, and and even even uh, doing late term abortions, and the and the re and uh, you know the the data, the studies have shown that the reasons women seek late term abortions are pretty much the reasons they seek early term abortions. Um, uh, they're not they're not because there's some you know devastating um, uh, illness in the in the child that's incompatible with life. Uh, they're pretty much the same reasons that women seek abortion in the first 12 weeks. Um, and even if, even if a child is carried late term and, uh, you know, a, a, uh, an anomaly incompatible with life is then discovered after 20 weeks, the, the best way, the most humane way to address that is an early delivery and palliative care, not uh, a technique that is intentionally designed to take the life of the child. There is, um, uh, you know, uh, 
palliative hospice that uh, doctors have developed across the country to uh, have a humane way of caring for a child who has uh, a, a, a genetic abnormality that is incompatible with life um, and uh, that is less violent and is compassionate for uh, you know mother and child. You know, I've uh, had experiences, not in my life, but people I knew very well, who had uh, that circumstance with a new baby and chose not to abort. And the baby lived 19 days and had such a major positive impact on everybody around him that it, it really uh, caught my attention that sometimes yeah. these tragedies actually can also result, and I'm not making it saying it's less tragic, but can really uh, bind couples, mm -hmm. can tear them apart as well, uh, but also impact people around uh, that birth. Absolutely. Palliative hospice uh, has had a positive impact on uh, mothers and, and, and marriages and medical professionals in, in, in the hospitals and on the surrounding community. Um, and it's the most humane thing to do. Uh, it's the healthiest thing to do. Uh, and uh, it should be more widely publicized and more widely available. We're about out of time. Uh, one last, uh, actually two questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, the pro-life movement for 50 years was focused on overturning Roe. I mean, that was the I mean, you, there were other aspects of it, but that was the primary drive. Mm. Now that that has been accomplished, how will the pro-life movement have to change to achieve the long-term goal of having people agree that there should not be abortion, regardless of legality? Well, we need to have a democratic disposition. Uh, we need to learn the lessons of Lincoln and his uh, very sensitive and thorough focus on public sentiment. And, and shaping public sentiment. I mean, on the most divisive issue of, of his age uh, in the 1850s, the issue of slavery, uh, Lincoln was very much focused on understanding public opinion, but he believed that public sentiment was something deeper and more abiding. Um, and he focused on shaping public sentiment and, and uh, not because he believed that public opinion was the moral standard or moral guide, but by understanding public sentiment, uh, he could work to achieve the greatest good possible for moral purpose in, in public policy. And as president, uh, you know, he continued to be very much focused on shaping public sentiment, understanding public sentiment, so that he could achieve his moral goals uh, as president in, in law. And, and that's the kind of model you now see going for the pro-life movement. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and persevering uh, for uh, a generation to, to, to change this public sentiment and, and the state's. Well, this has been very interesting and frankly illuminating a lot of uh, what you said I was not aware of. Uh, and so my last question is, what next for Clark Forsyth? Well, uh, hopefully uh, I can uh, produce uh, a co-author uh, over the next couple of years, a, uh, a textbook in law and bioethics, um, because as, as you know, uh, there is no, uh, no legal textbook 
on the market in the United States, except from a utilitarian standpoint. And there needs to be a textbook available for the next generation of lawyers and law students that brings together uh, the rich um, uh, legal, medical, humanistic resources that show um, our long legal uh, and cultural heritage of uh, respecting human life from the beginning to end of life. As the Hippocratic Oath did. Uh, absolutely. 2,500 years ago. That's right. Well, Clark, thank you very much for being uh, on Humanize, and I'd like to talk to you about that bioethics book at some point. Thank you, Wesley. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.